Hello, and welcome to the Functionally Enlightened Podcast with Dr. Sharon Sarita. We interview well-respected medical and functional practitioners, as well as patients who have overcome disabling chronic conditions, such as dysautonomia, and reclaimed their health. These enlightened guests provide helpful tips on managing chronic pain and illnesses using a combination of traditional and whole-body healing modalities. If you're interested in natural healing and quality of life improvement, you're in the right place. Thank you for listening to today's episode. everyone. Welcome to our podcast. In this episode, we're honored to host Rita Curley, a remarkable individual who has conquered numerous health challenges and dedicated her life to advocacy. Rita's journey is filled with unique experiences. She was diagnosed with dysautonomia, PCOS, and MCAS. She's a mother to a young daughter with nonverbal autism, and she's a survivor of domestic violence and sexual assault. Also, she's a former law enforcement officer. Her commitment to helping others is truly inspiring. However, unforeseen medical complications forced her to leave her career as a law enforcement officer. Rita's determination and holistic approach to wellness led her to a path of recovery and remission. In sharing her story, Rita aims to inspire others in the quest for a balanced and healthier life. Rita, we thank you so much for taking some time out this morning to speak with us. We'd like to get to know you a little better. So can you share some more about your personal journey towards your healing Absolutely. First, I want to thank you, Sharon, for inviting me onto your podcast. I'm a fan of it. It's been helping me in my healing journey, and it's a privilege to be here, to have the opportunity to be a part of that movement you're creating right now. So thank you. To say a little more about myself, um, you know, I'm 38 years old. I'm currently working as a Title IX investigator at a large publicly funded research university in the Northeast. Not only am I a former police officer, but I'm also the wife of a police officer. So it's still very much a part of my daily lifestyle. When I have free time, I enjoy spending that with family and friends outdoors, hiking, pontooning. I love gardening cooking, reading, writing, some things I'm trying to get back to from before I fell ill, mountain biking, running and weightlifting. So I like to stay active and stay connected with people. And I think the hardest part of being as sick as I was, was that I really had to pull away from that to address what was going on. Mm -hmm. I can imagine with your line of work, in addition to your own illness, the amount of stress you've been under or you were under is probably a huge burden. And can you tell us a little bit about how you felt working and undergoing your own journey to a diagnosis? It was, I want to call it unbearable some days, but that's not true because I I did bear it and I made it through. Uh, But it really felt very overwhelming some days. And I think a big factor of my getting sick was, or as sick as I got, was that I was so focused on helping other people that I really forgot that if I don't take care of myself, I'm not going to have anything to give. And that's the point that I got to. I just spent it all. And it forced me to step back and and change the way that, that I was operating. So you give and give and give, and you probably didn't expect much in return. I see this often with chronic illness warriors and that 
you know, we're more of givers and we do sacrifice ourselves just for the benefit of others. And there's nothing wrong with that. But as you mentioned, there's there should be a line that we draw so that we don't allow ourselves to be overburdened with all of the internal and external stressors. In you taking all this in, I'm sure you experienced a wide range of symptoms during your, you're probably still experiencing some of those symptoms. <laughs> yes. And, however, can you talk to us about how you learned it might have become a chronic condition versus something that could have been tackled by traditional medicine? Yeah, so what I'm learning now, you know, they say hindsight's twenty twenty. it's so true. I've had these symptoms since I was about seven years old. My mother passed away from lung cancer when I was six. And I've learned a lot about the connection between trauma and well-being. And that was probably, you know, what tipped this off in the beginning. And for years, I struggled with uh, severe migraines, fainting, anywhere from having a complete lack of a period to having a period that was 60 days long with hemorrhaging, tachycardia, SVT, vertigo, tinnitus, anything from black spots in my vision to complete blackouts. Of vision, serious mood swings that really felt like out of body experiences that I had no control over. They were really scary. Insomnia, joint and muscle pain, to the point of, you know, taking your breath away. This isn't just an annoying sensation. This is like stops you in your tracks level of pain. Weakness, lack of coordination. At one point, I didn't have the coordination to crack an egg. Fatigue, various bacterial infections, acne, hair loss, hair overgrowth, ulcers, thrush, bruising, extreme weight fluctuations, nausea and vomiting, paleness, and not just, you know, being a, a pale person in the winter, like to the point where people would comment on it all the time. Extreme sensitivity to cold and heat, blood pooling, confusion, lack of memory, and, and rashes of all varieties. And, and I've dealt with those things for, for the majority of my life. At certain points, they peaked. I would say during my pregnancy and my labor and delivery, which ended up being an emergency C-section following 28 hours of labor. There was a noticeable peak in symptoms at that point, as well as after being on the midnight shift as a police officer for several years, things really peaked. And then at its worst was after the third time that I contracted the COVID virus. And, and that's at the point that it became completely disabling. What you pointed out or what I'm hearing is that during some major stresses in life, you know, pregnancy is a pretty long-term stress, but as you mentioned, actual, you know, going into labor and then having to go into emergency cesarean, that's incredibly stressful on the body. And it's amazing to see how we're expected to jump back to normal routine when we have undergone such an invasive procedure while at the same time trying to be a caretaker for an infant. That definitely is a huge stressor. And you mentioned with the job, like I can imagine, you know, maybe I can't imagine and you can tell us a little bit more of what it was on that side of things. I can imagine from what I've seen on TV shows and whatnot, just even watching those is enough of a stressor. On my body. 
<laughs> it's it's true. It's you know, it was it was simultaneously the best and worst time of my life. Um, the 15 years that I spent serving as a police officer, I loved it. I loved going into work, but I was really not appreciating the amount of stress that I was putting on myself because I was so thinking of other people all the time and, and how I could help them. And the way that your adrenaline and your cortisol and your dopamine and, and all of those hormones are affected by that extreme, extreme exposure to stress that you go through as a police officer, especially in a busy jurisdiction. I worked in a busy place and at a department that was just small enough that we didn't really have separate bureaus for things. So as a patrol officer, you were taking on a little bit of everything and those constant spikes of, okay, one minute I'm sitting here, I'm trying to eat lunch and now I'm running to you know, a, a baby having difficulty breathing. Okay, I took care of that. That's over. Baby's okay. I'm going to go try to get my lunch again. Oh, wait, no, now I'm being called to a car accident. Unknown injuries. You show up there, you take care of business. And it's, it's this day in, day out, year after year exposure. And it just it compiles and you can see it when you look around the police department, you know, in my department, there was a wall of pictures of people that had reached retirement. And in policing, you on average retire younger than your typical job. And I'm looking at these pictures around the room. And I mean, these people looked like they were 70 years old and they were 50. And I think that says a lot about what stress does to your body. The longevity factor, it goes out the window. Yeah. And, you know, I, I heard and I saw so much people going out early from heart attacks or cancers or, um, you know, alcoholism and, and the disease that that brings with it or, you know, narcotics addictions, all sorts of things. And, and people will look at that person and be like, oh, they were weak. They let the job get to them. And... I would always think to myself, you know, it's amazing they made it as far as they did. Deep. Yeah. With this type of work. And even, you know, we experience traumas differently to things, whether it's surgical trauma or like abusive relationships, which you have a lot of experience with in both personal and in the workforce. Mm -hmm. All of that is to say that, you know, traditional medicine will say stress is a big problem but they don't give guidance on what specifically about the stress and how to calm it down. So we're talking about physical, chemical, emotional, mental, all of that disrupting our HPA axis. And like you mentioned, the cortisol dysregulation and the impacts to our circadian rhythm. So we're having to deal with all of this, making an imbalanced hormonal system for sure. And that cascades to all of the other functions in the body. A lot of people don't make that connection. And I guess we didn't to a certain extent because we pushed right. it so long. Yeah, I mean, I was I was working with young men that, you know, in their mid-20s are being diagnosed with fatty liver disease. And they're not big drinkers. So 
you have to think to yourself, what is that? And their doctors just tell them, oh, you need to go on a diet. And I'd be talking with them and I'd be like, it's not the diet. Your liver should be able to filter these things at your age. So what else is it? And, you know, I didn't know the answers at that time, but I was at least in the mindset where I was asking those questions and I would ask those questions of my doctors and they would just say they didn't know. You know, the body, the body's mysterious is an answer I got a lot. Or when I was having my own health issues and having tests come back, sometimes normal, sometimes not, but not being able to really find a root cause that they could treat physically, they would call me weird, which I think is terrible bedside manner. Mm -hmm. Um, I was often referred to as a red flag case. Yeah. Um, I was told, you know, your circumstances are going to be dire if you don't change something. And I would tell them, I understand that, but you're not telling me what I need to change. Mm -hmm. So in, in that respect, they were creating more stress around the problems that, that existed. And they were offloading their own stress of not being able to figure out what it was onto me and putting the blame on me, which I think was unfair. I do accept responsibility and accountability, but if you're a healthcare practitioner, you you really need to be cognizant of what you're saying, how you're saying it, how it can be interpreted. And is this going to be helpful for this person ultimately to hear this? Or am I just creating more stress and fear? Yes. That fear is something that is provoked often when we're shuttled around from specialist to specialist. And I know I've seen well over a dozen and you've seen a lot. Do you recall approximately how many different specialists you've seen over the years? It's just shy of 20 different types of specialties. But then you think I've seen, you know, three to five of each of those specialists. So you can imagine how much time I've spent in doctor's offices. Mm -hmm. And that's not even counting the emergency ambulatory trips and the hours that you spend sitting in the ER waiting for your test results to come back to be told, I see, I can look at you and I can see that there's a problem. But if I were to take these results and put them next to a textbook, you're perfectly healthy. Right. Or at least you're within the lab range that excludes you from that disease state. So, Correct. Yeah, those, those labs, especially in the emergency room, we go because we're seeking help because we're in such a dire place at that current moment. But unfortunately, they're not equipped to handle chronic illness, you know. Right, um, right. Definitely much needed for those emergency situations. And it'd be a fantastic situation for people with chronic illness to be able to to find assistance there when when they're having anaphylaxis or if they're having an episode with gastroparesis or something like that. But in my experience, it hasn't really been helpful other than things like IV fluids that were definitely needed at that time. Right, right. And, you know, I, I won't deny that, like you're saying, they helped me in those acute episodes, but then when you're seeking guidance after that acute episode is over and you're like, okay, well, why did this happen? Where do I go from here? And they just push you back to your PCP. It's very disheartening. We're going to revisit this again, just briefly, but yeah, whenever we get sent back to our, our PCMs or PCPs, 
it's generally the same workup. We look to be within the normal range, excluded that disease state. So that does not align with functional lab work. Like in the functional space, we look at the healthy population, and that is the range where we need to try to work with our bodies in different methods like lifestyle and exercise, stress reduction, supplementation as needed to be able to shift more in that direction without specifically treating what we see on the paper. Like right. people with symptoms and we should be able to tell when things are working, but when we're in such a fight or flight state, when we're really desperate to find answers, it's really hard to, to notice when symptoms are improving. Yes, I would agree with that. And I got typecasted into a lot of the misdiagnoses that I had just simply because I was a police officer. When they couldn't find the answer, they're like, oh, you have complex PTSD. It does all sorts of weird things to your body. Maybe this is your body trying to tell you that it doesn't want to be doing this stuff anymore. And I would try to explain it to them that that is not how I felt, that I would have these medical events and that would create anxiety, that it wasn't the way that they were thinking of it, that I was having anxiety that was creating these medical events. And I found myself constantly having to explain that. And when I had the symptoms flare after my labor and delivery, things got pretty intense. And again, the doctor said, oh, well, you have postpartum depression. I really am not having a difficulty making a connection with my child. I don't feel this is related to that. They just wouldn't listen. And it was very validating when I finally got my dysautonomia diagnosis, very validating that it wasn't all of these things that they said it was. I remember being admitted to the hospital after I had a mimic stroke, and they were telling me that I must have a traumatic brain injury from all of the fights and car accidents and things like that that come along with an active career in policing. And then when all of my CAT scans and MRIs and EMGs and ECGs and EEGs and all of that came back normal. They were like, oh, well, you must have adrenal gland cancer. So you go through all the testing for that. And they're like, well, then it's MS. And even though we don't see lesions, you're probably just really at the beginning stages of MS. So buckle up. And as hard as that is on me, that's even harder on my family that I'm coming back from the hospital every other week. You know, I know they said they thought it was cancer. Great. It's not cancer, but now they're saying it's MS. Just the whole, the process to seeking diagnosis so that you can get the proper treatment. That is so traumatic too, because as you said, you're like constantly testing for different things that can hypothetically or no, like literally be worse. Um, but the symptoms are very similar to a lot of those. Like if you look at the list of symptoms under MS, under dysautonomia, and even under cancer, we share a lot of the symptoms. However, with those other conditions, there are treatment protocols that are pretty definitive. There's there's a lot of research that shows, you know, there can be some improvement here, not necessarily right. a cure. But for dysautonomia, it's so variable across the board. And there's not enough research. So I'm glad that it's coming to the forefront, especially with, you know, the pandemic. A lot of the cases with long haulers is what's spurring the research for dysautonomia. And I know that over this past year, you found a lot of improvement 
And so could you share with us a little bit about the types of things that you've tried? Maybe you can touch on the Western medicine world that you know did or did not help. And then what you've been doing recently where you've seen a lot more progress. Yeah, you know, for years, I I was really just hyper-focused on the Western medicine side of things um, because that's, you know, how I was raised. You don't feel good to go to the doctor. They give you a pill. You get on with your life. And it just seemed, well, it didn't seem, it was the fact that the more pills they were trying to to shove down my throat, the sicker I was getting. And I really had to step back and take a look at that and say to myself, how many times am I going to do this to myself before I finally take the one pill that, you know, puts me over the edge into an injury. And that was kind of the beginning of me turning towards more holistic wellness. I'd say my entry into holistic wellness was actually talk therapy. And that really opened my mind to understanding how trauma was affecting my physicality. It's funny because I had you know, obviously with the things that I was, the fields I was working in, I was a very trauma-informed person and I always understood how it affected other people and I was incredibly empathetic to that, but I couldn't look in the mirror and tell myself, I love you, I want to take care of you. I couldn't do it. I can do that now, but I could not do that when I first started going into those holistic modalities. So I then ventured into tapping or EFT, where you hit pressure points while you're talking aloud to yourself, acknowledging, you know, the symptoms that you're having. That was incredibly helpful. DNRS, the dynamic neural remapping system, aka limbic therapy, Mm -hmm. that, that was really, really great. And then as I had mentioned earlier Reiki therapy, I'd say that those are the four things holistically that have really helped me. Western medicine wise, I do still see my cardiologist, my endocrinologist and my allergist. But to be completely honest, I almost don't know why I'm seeing them anymore. And one of them recently during an appointment told me that they were sorry that I was paying to visit them because they were actually learning more from me than they were helping me. Wow. And I suppose in a way that's why I keep going because I want them to see my progress and I want them to see what I'm doing. And to take that and suggest it to other people And I think once you have Western medicine doctors acknowledging this, you know, saying, I can't treat this. Why don't you go see a nutritionist? Maybe you should go talk to a therapist as opposed to a psychiatrist. You know, I got I got sent to a lot of different psychiatric doctors and methods like EMDR and you know, doctors that wanted to put me on this antidepressant and that antidepressant. And ultimately they made me worse because at the bottom of it, at the crux of all of it was a hormone imbalance Mm -hmm. that those medicines were just exacerbating. I can relate a lot with everything you're saying right now. Definitely. I went through 
very similar process, even with the pharmaceuticals. Yeah, so so not that anybody wants to be diagnosed with a chronic illness like dysautonomia, that's daunting in and of itself, but to touch back again and how validating it was that I wasn't losing control of my mind, that you know, I didn't have cancer or MS, that I have something that is still very misunderstood and there's a lot of research going into it and that that gave me a lot of hope that okay, I can keep trying and I'm going to keep trying as long as it takes. And that led me to the Enable Your Healing program with with Mary Ruddick that, you know, at the foundation of it, it's nutritional, but it, it also combines all of these lifestyle practices that You may think to yourself in the moment, like, oh, this is a little silly for me to be doing. I feel silly doing this. But then you realize after a month of doing it, oh, I'm seeing improvement in my sleep. Well, that's huge for my healing. I better keep doing that. Or for me, you know, when I was at the worst point of my disability, I literally couldn't eat. The mast cell activation syndrome was so bad that... If I was going to eat, I was on a long-term antihistamine, so I had to take Zyrtec every day, twice a day usually, Pepsid as an acid blocker. I'd have to take Benadryl and I'd have to take Ativan, which people think of Ativan as a psychiatric drug, but really what it is is a powerful short-acting antihistamine. And I would have to take all of those medications just to eat and I still wouldn't feel good. And I I got to a point where I barely weighed a hundred pounds and I'm five foot eight. And, you know, in my, I call it my previous life in my previous life as a police officer, you know, I was this tall, strong, 145 pounds, but still a size two. So you can imagine how athletic and muscular that that build looks down to not being able to look at myself in the mirror because I could see every single rib in my back. And my doctor's telling me, we're going to have to be putting you on a tube soon if you can't figure out a way to eat. And, you know, I started Mary's program and... The funny thing about it is you're only eating soup. I mean, I'm 11 months into it. I still eat only soup all day. And I actually started gaining weight because my body was getting the nutrition that it needed in combination with the lifestyle practices that were calming my nervous system down enough to allow me to absorb that nutrition. And, you know, sitting here talking to you today, I'm not where I want to be yet, but I'm 125 pounds now. That's that's significant. I'm off of all medications that I had been taking, except for occasionally needing Ativan or Benadryl when I'm having a reaction to trying a new food. You can't deny that progress as much as it's as it's not a popular way of living right now. You can't deny it. And that's that's what my doctors are really in awe of. They're like, you know, we've we've tried you on every medicine in the book and you're eating chicken soup 
and it's healing you. And I'm like, it's not quite that simple, but essentially, yeah, it's not, it's not the medicines. It's, it's the lifestyle. This is my thought on it, on the actual protocol that we are both on. It is beyond the soup. Like it's whole foods. Like you're always shopping organic, non-processed, grain-free, which is always recommended across the board. Like we want to be as free from toxins as possible. And the best way is to not Mm -hmm. have synthesized foods or sprayed with pesticides and herbicides, things like that. But another foundational piece to, to the diet component of it is, and you might have gone through several diets like I did, but I went through, you know, a completely almost zero fat diet thinking, okay, I need to eat all just plant. There was a lot of fruit, a lot of variety of vegetables, but it, it's so nuanced. We can't do a one size fits all. There's so many types of plants that have I won't call them toxins, but oxalates and you can say salicylate or salicylate. People like to use either pronunciation, but it's just we are highly sensitive people. And so our bodies react a little bit more to whether it be lectins or like I mentioned, oxalates. And those are the things that tell us something's off in the body, not necessarily that something is diseased, but there's an imbalance in there. And so we can't fit the mold of these traditional diets. Going onto this sort of a soup protocol, we also embedded in there a lot of fat. And yes. going through going through the educational components, kind of it's a ketogenic type diet. And just immersing myself in the studies, I learned how fats are fundamental, along with we'll say all the B vitamins, to build those hormones. And so we're back here with the hormonal imbalances that we weren't told traditionally, oh, you need to consume more fats or take in more fats. Like that was never a suggestion to me. Oh. Right. To go back to the PCOS component of my dysautonomia, you know, for years dealing with amenorrhea and and also really heavy menstrual cycles, I, it was back and forth to this birth control, this hormone replacement therapy. And really... For the first time in my life, and Sharon, I'm 38 years old, I'm having almost a full year of regular monthly periods. I have never experienced that in my entire life. So to me, that is the most significant sign of my healing, particularly as a woman, is that one component coming back online and then everything else I'm seeing fall in with that. And you said something earlier about being extra sensitive to things that we eat. I don't think that's a coincidence. You know, I'm an empath. That is why I was so good at my job as a police officer was having that extra sensitivity, not only to people's emotions, but also now I'm learning in my own body to everything that's in my environment. So, you know, yes, my nutrition has very much changed as part of this protocol, but also the detoxification of my surroundings, not wearing makeup anymore, using all natural animal-based beauty products, using my beauty routine has just completely changed. And I was thinking about it this morning while I was 
washing up before getting ready to do this podcast, you know, I was looking at myself in the mirror and I was thinking about how I used to see these big, dark bags under my eyes and be so quick to put makeup on to cover it up and wham, bam, all set. Not a problem anymore. When really, you know, that was my body showing me something was wrong and I was just ignoring it. And that's what we do with medication. You take one medication to stop one symptom and it creates another one and you hop onto another medication and another and another and another until pictures saved in my phone of the, you know, more than a dozen prescription pill bottles that I had on my bathroom counter at one point. And now what sits on my bathroom counter is a couple of vitamins and that's what I take every day and I feel better than I ever have. And you touched up on the personal care products also, all natural, you know, using things like coconut oil and just natural herbal things. Anything that you would not consume shouldn't be placed on the skin because your skin is the largest organ. It absorbs and it comes into the bloodstream too. So that's a huge piece too. It's part of lifestyle. Yeah, like never, never did I think I'd be rubbing beef tallow and goat lotion on myself, you know, and... I think I look better now than I did 10 years ago. I'm hopeful that as I continue with this protocol, it's just going to be looking better and better. And I have so many friends, you know, in our age bracket that are turning to things like Botox and, Mm -hmm. and things like that. And I was working with a young girl, 23 years old, and she looked at me and she goes, do you do Botox? I was like, no. She's like, your skin looks like mine. How old are you? And those may seem like rude questions, but like, I'm happy to answer them at this point because like, I want to show that young girl, like I'm almost 40. I've never touched those things. I changed my diet and my lifestyle and my skin improved with it, you know, and in a permanent way, not, not in a temporary way that I have to go touch up again in a few months. So that getting those kind of comments from strangers and acquaintances is is pretty powerful too. More evidence that's showing you you're on the path to healing, the path to recovery from maybe even remission is the word that I'm looking for. <laughs> that's the goal. Yeah. And for a clarification to our listeners, we mentioned the consumption of a lot of protein and fats, and this isn't just things that you would pick up in fast food or conventionally raised products. Like you, you always want to look for that grass fed, like pasture raised animal product. And also in terms of the fat, it's not seed oils, it's not margarine and things like that. We're looking at healthy fats. Um, yeah, butter, raw butter, preferably. There's ghee, which is like touted number one, especially. For oh, that's that is what I live off of is ghee. I go through a glass jar of that every couple of days. I never thought in my life I'd be sitting there consuming almost 190, 200 grams of fat in a day and not be having a heart attack and actually be feeling functionally much better than I was and. I don't know when, when you step away from convention, right. Mm -hmm. And you start to see these improvements, it just causes this ripple effect of opening your mind to all the possibilities of what's out there and wanting to learn more and try more. And 
understand more and and be again just open-minded to all the different modalities that that people are using to to get better and understand that there's an infinite amount of approaches out there and i i think the best thing you know for those of your listeners that are out there that are that are spiritually based i am and i know i like to think of things as happening for a reason that maybe i don't even understand at that time but when my daughter was diagnosed with autism i used to pray constantly you know please help me to find a way to just bring her ease I'm not one of these people that that thinks, you know, I have to cure the autism. Neurodivergence can be a beautiful thing, and I am an advocate for that. But there are some comorbidities that come along with autism that can make life very difficult for people on the spectrum. And I would just pray that I would know Mm -hmm. what to do for my daughter, even when she couldn't tell me how she was feeling. And getting this sick forced me to learn about the nervous system and its connection to the gut and that gut-brain access. Um, and I've been altering my, my daughter's diet as much as she'll allow. Um, she's a little bit rigid, but I have seen the improvements in her behavior and her mood. Just making a switch to grass-fed or A2 or reducing significantly the glutens and sugars that she's consuming, you know, and she's, she's not on any behavioral medication, which is something that's pretty uncommon from, from what I've seen. And she's a, she's a happy, healthy kid. And I think that we're on this journey together and in that sense, I don't think that it's an accident that that I got as sick as I did. And I'm the type of person that's willing to share these things with other people. So for that reason also, I think that there's a reason. And I've, I've brought this not only to the neurodivergent communities that, that I work with, but also police officer wellness. You know, I'm obviously still very connected to that community and I have people coming to me and and asking me now to help them with their nutrition. And I'm not a nutritionist and I always refer them to find a proper practitioner, but it's, it's pretty cool to be able to sit down and have these conversations with these people that, you know, this is, this is what worked for me. And I think it's really going to help reduce your stress and, create longevity in your career and your life. Beautifully said. I I do believe that learning as much as possible, advocating for yourself and definitely thinking outside of the box are are all critical pieces to uh, the chronic illness community that's, that's been struggling and looking for answers. Now they know that their health is more in their hands than they were led to believe. And that's not saying that they're going to be cured. Everyone's going to be cured of all of their ailments, but there are a lot of practices that we can take on that might lessen that that burden. Yeah, you can make the choice to find joy and gratitude in truly everything. 
that you experience in life. Like I, I could sit back and be angry at how long it took me to get a diagnosis, but instead I choose to be thankful that I ruled out so many other things that I had that opportunity to do that and everything that I learned from that. And if there's only room for you to add one thing to your lifestyle every day, my advice would be a gratitude journal. It was something I was introduced to through the program that we're in. And it's probably the thing that I've been most consistent with throughout this process. And every single day, the first thing that I do when I wake up is I write at least a couple of pages worth of, of not general things that I'm thankful for, not just like, oh, the health and wellness of my friends and family. Certainly you can write about that, but really specific, articulable things like the way that I was able to hop out of bed this morning without any pain in my back like I used to have, how beautiful the sunrise was as I opened up my window shade this morning, the way that I heard my daughter giggling before I went upstairs to get her out of bed, like keeping your focus and starting your day off on that foot just has the most amazing effect on how you carry yourself for the rest of your day. And then that compounds into weeks and months. And here I am looking at a year now of practicing that. And I'm just happy with so many aspects of my life, even though I still don't feel fantastic a lot of the times, that gratitude helps carry me through those lows. I love that as a primary pillar to healing. I love that you recommended that. And I hope that our listeners take that into consideration. It's something you can do at home pretty easily, free, even if you have mobility issues, there's different methods. You can journal and pen. If it's on your cell phone, typing a note, it doesn't really matter. Just as long as you, you get that feeling of gratitude deep within you. Exactly. Yeah. We appreciate all of your, your knowledge, your wisdom that you shared with everyone. Is there a way people can reach out to you to maybe learn a little bit more about how your journey progressed and where you're at now? Do you have any type of platforms that people can be on the lookout for you? Yeah, if, if people wanted to contact me on LinkedIn, I'm under Rita Curley, or I'm always happy to take email at Rita M. Curley at gmail.com. And that's Amazon Marie. And, you know, I would just ask that if, if you're going to send an email, just let me know that it's in relation to, to dysautonomia or, or lifestyle things so I can help to filter it out from the other work emails that I get. Right. Perfect. And we'll attach that to the show notes for those of you who might want a little bit more information. You know, it's very helpful to get perspective from somebody who's been through it all and who has found success in living a more radiant life because of the transitions that, that have occurred over the last few years. Rita, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. And I know how hard it is sometimes to revisit, especially trial and error cycle that, that we're in for so long. So thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. It was an absolute pleasure. And thank you to our listeners. We'll see you next time. 
Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and also to our Instagram. Our handle is functionally enlightened. Dr. Sharon Sarita is not a medical professional and is not providing healthcare, medical, or nutritional therapy services or attempting to diagnose, treat, prevent, or cure any physical, mental, or emotional issue. The information provided in this podcast is for the informational purposes only and is not intended to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek advice from your physician or other qualified healthcare provider before undertaking a new health regimen. Do not disregard medical advice or delay seeking medical advice because of information you heard in this podcast. Do not start or stop any medications without speaking to your medical or mental health provider.